Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, <laughs> a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. I think it's worth, like, in talking about this specific headline, Women's March Roiled by Accusations of Anti Semitism, talking about some historical context for the Women's March and, like, what has really roiled it since day one. We did a research dive for this episode. <laughs> Hello, Anne Friedman. Hi, hi. Happy 2019. Again, always. <laughs> I'm always. just going to, what if I just say that every podcast of the entire year? You know, I would enjoy it. I love being reminded what year we're in, so I stop signing things 2017. Thank you. I do think it is important in January to be constantly vigilant of what year it is. Yeah. Okay. I feel like we should get right into it because we have so much to talk about this week. Tell me, what are we talking about this week? Well, I am going to explain this listener email we received. It started with a link to a New York Times article, uh, the headline of which is Women's March Roiled by Accusations of Anti-Semitism. And the listener writes, This situation is heartbreaking to me. It's the epitome of divide and conquer. I believe that both sides believe strongly in their truth, but I also believe that we must find a way to live with our differences and unite to fight the bigger challenges before us. The two of you have a platform and the skills to start to reverse the vicious cycle. I don't blame you for wanting to avoid it, but the stakes are just too high. I have so many feelings. Me too. I, I have so like full body chills feelings. One, I use my platform for snacks. Like, let's just get that right. Snacks and luxury skincare. <laughs> So, like, my job is not to solve problems. Are you but, reacting to that word avoid? Because I had a real reaction to that. I'm reacting to avoid. But the other thing that is, I think I'm also having a very strong reaction to is that I just firmly believe that if you're above the age of 13, if you hear yourself saying both sides, you should take a deep breath. And whatever comes afterwards is, like, never good. So... Okay, I just want to suggest for the sake of staying on track that we come back to this listener email <laughs> because oh. I could definitely go off the deep end with like the many things this makes me feel, but I want to wait for one second because we definitely have talked about drama within the Women's March organizing, different things that are going on with regards to like race and class and politics at play with like who is showing up to March and what do the organizing what does the organizing look like and does it represent feminism capital F? And can that, can feminism even be represented by like a, you know, a concrete group of people? Like we have talked about many of these things over the past two years. But I think it's worth like in talking about this specific headline roiled by accusations of anti-Semitism, talking about some historical context for the Women's March and like what has really roiled it since day one. We did a research dive for this episode. <laughs> We did. We did a lot of research. You're my favorite investigative reporter, and I'm so happy we're going to talk about this. I mean, I use all of my, like, Kardashian recap skills to bear for the Women's March for you. Right. So let's get grounded in some, like, just facts about the Women's March. The Women's March happened on the heels of, you know, some would say the, the most controversial election we've ever had. 
the truth of the Women's March is that 1% of the entire population of the U.S. participated. It's the largest single-day protest in this country's history. So huge. That's, so that's not nothing. Yeah. That's huge. I don't like the word drama, but for, for the purposes of this, I'm going to use drama because it is very Kardashian, like, a feeling. The first bit of drama that there was with the Women's March was that there was a sense of, like, the Women's March was, like, very white-centered and that it mostly catered to issues that were important to white women. And this is like fully when we did not know who was organizing the Women's March. It was like you just kept being invited on Facebook to a march that kept swelling and it was unclear who was the leader of it. Right, like splinter groups from Pantsuit Nation. Like if you are not deep in the Facebook, a specific corner of Facebook, you were like, right. what is going on? And so so this is happening. People are like, who is organizing the Women's March? And then that is when the names Tamika Mallory, Carmen Perez, Linda Sarsour, all pop up. And so these women are brought in to be the co-chairs of the Women's March. You've probably heard some names. You probably have not heard any. I would say that probably Linda Sarsour is the name that most people who are in this corner of the internet have heard because Linda is like very known for her support of the movement to boycott Israel. She is um, she is a Palestinian American and she is a very visible Muslim woman. Right. And I think like it's worth noting that there were definitely what I felt were really good conversations around like who does this movement center, who is getting to be um, like held up as the leadership and who is like doing the unsexy work to plan this march. Like these are kind of questions that came up vis-a-vis -vis, like historic issues of race and privilege within feminism. Like right. Some of those conversations because were had at the time. Remember that the name even had to change. Exactly. The, the name had to change because the original name, you're right, had been the Million Women March after the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which was like a historical civil rights rally on the mall where MLK delivered the like, I have a dream speech. So they went through like different iterations of the name until they settled on the Women's March, mm -hmm. uh, TM, never used before. But even the a real shocker, I gotta say. <laughs> I, well, you know, you gotta be specific about your marches. That's the listen. We're about to get into the drama of this thing. Yep. Um, but you know, I think that like you're right. Those conversations were really important to have because historically, in moments like these, like white women have just come in to to reinvent the wheel or to purport that uh, that sexism is new. It was a new feeling. And after the election, it was definitely a place where I would say like, as a woman of color, I was very tender mm -hmm. where people were like, Oh my God, can you believe how trash the country is? And I'm like, mm, welcome to the party young lady. And you're like, can you believe it? I was like, yeah, like I didn't find out that America was racist when Hillary Clinton lost the election. Sure. You know what I mean? But a lot of people did, I guess. But so, all of this stuff I feel like was what was underpinning the conversation about who was leading the women's march, what it was called, what issues it was centering. Like that is a conversation that was part of the earliest days of this right. effort. And it was really important to have. Like I think that um, everybody should have a healthy level of skepticism when you get an invitation from somebody that you don't know to something that is, you know, that supposedly includes you. I think that that is fair. So as we said, co-chairs are installed, like the thing, the, the like bus starts driving itself. The next issue... Or rather, seven coaches <laughs> start driving the bus with right. a lot of other help. Yeah. Um, you know, and so the march happens. The march, I hear, was lit. I personally did not go. Well, 
I did go, I'm going to talk more about this a little later in this episode, but like, yes, I was there. <laughs> it was happened. It? I saw Instagrams. Like people went. It we made great. an episode about it. We, you might've heard great. some people. Yeah. I heard it. There were yeah. like very, you talked to like these very cute young women, even as somebody who did not go for a fleeting moment. I was like, this feels great. You know, even though my third eye is wide open. Right after the march, the Women's March drafts what they call their unity principles. It's the read me, the about <laughs> page of the Women's March for the tech ladies And out I, there. I think like also designed to answer this question of like, okay, the march is over. What now? Like, what is this mm-hmm. group about? And like, that's how I at least read these unity principles as a statement of where is this organization? If it's an organization, where is it going? Right. And that's how they're meant to be read. And so... The planks were all good, but one of them like definitely raised some eyebrows. I will read it. It said, we believe that women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. You might have heard that one before. We must create a society in which women, including black women, native women, poor women, immigrant women, disabled women, Muslim women, lesbian, queer, and trans women are free and able to care and nurture for their families, however they are formed in safe and healthy environments, free from structural impediments. That sounds great to me generally, but a thing that also happens when you start listing out um, a soup of identities, there are identities that you do not cover, some very obvious and some not very obvious. And uh, Jewish feminists flagged very early on that that list of people who were upheld as the society of women that we were creating like did not include Jewish feminists. This, I think, is important because historically in the United States, Jewish feminists have been at the forefront of the progressive movement. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like a a group of women just decided like, hey, how come women from Wichita (laughs) Wichita aren't like included in the plank? It was like women who historically have been feminist organizers and women who have been a part of the women's march from the beginning. Because you have to remember that there are like co-chairs, but there are also like a lot of people who are working behind the scenes. Like it's not like seven co-chairs or however many co-chairs they have is not what organizes the women's march. It is a coalition of people. And here was a group of women who felt that they were not named in the plank. And I think it was, for me anyway... I read some of that dissent as saying like, hey, Jewish women are vulnerable in this particular way in this particular moment too. Agreed. That is very true and fair. The next point of interest is... so the Drama, women, just say it. <laughs> the, next, the next drama that emerges is, so, the, you know, the Women's March happened in January, the Unity Plank happens like January-ish, and then in March, you know, is International Women's Day. And so March 2017... I guess we remember that was was also called the day without a woman strike. Like, you know, there were hashtags, you were supposed to walk out of work, like that whole thing. And the Women's March for the strike, for the day without woman strike, included a plank on an anti-racist and anti-imperialist feminism. So the plank started with the words against the open white supremacists and the current government and the far right and anti-Semites they have given confidence to we stand for an uncompromising anti-racist and anti-colonialism feminism. Then that same plank ends with these words. Justice for Palestine are for us the beating heart of this new feminist movement. So some of us are just like, all of this sounds great. And some of us are like, eyebrow raised. Like, what is going on here? This prompts an op-ed by Emily Shire called, Does Feminism Have Room for Zionists? 
If you don't know what Zionism is, you're probably going to have to look it up to keep up with this conversation. (laughs) Zionism, listen, Zionism is a political belief that some people have that the state of Israel has the right to exist. It sounds very duh aficionado magazine to some of us and to others of us, it literally is a challenge. So you can decide for yourself where you fall on that, but like Google it, Zionism. Anyway, so this question that Emily Shire poses, does feminism have room for Zionists, is actually a very salient question because the plank implies that if opposition to Israel, so it says that if opposition to Israel is a core plank of being a feminist or at least being a women's march feminist, um, where, TM. <laughs> TM. It's true though. It's like, yeah. where do Jews fit in? And I think that that, like, that, is, a very, that is a very valid question. Well, in part valid because justice for Palestine was not, like, defined in depth of, like, what does justice look like? Which, like, let's talk about core activist questions all the time. What does justice look like? What does justice look like? And also, like, to be clear, if you read the plank, it, like, it calls out anti-Semites, like Mm -hmm. the anti-Semites that are, um, that the government has given confidence to. And so there's nuance here, right? And it's why, it's why the devil is in the details. But so anyway, Emily Shire writes this op-ed, does feminism have room for Zionist? Uh, And Linda Sarsour, who we mentioned earlier, responds in The Nation and says, you either stand up for the rights of all women, including Palestinians, or none. There is just no way around it. And so this sets up, like, clearly the showdown here, right? And the showdown is truly that Linda's comment implies that you are either a Zionist or a feminist. And because she's part of the small organizing committee, it implies that that is the view of the Women's March, and that is what justice for Palestine means in that language in the plank. 100%. And I will say, too, that something that is, like, really fascinating about the drama so far is that even though everybody is using their words in, like, print or writing or whatever, there are still so many questions. Like, the word justice, what does it mean to all of us? The word, you know, like... What does it mean to stand up for the rights of all women? Like, mm-hmm. are we agreed on that? And also, like, why can't you be a Zionist and a feminist? Like, or why, like, why are they, like, no, I don't think that anybody has, like, convincingly explained that yet. So anyway, um, you know, the drama happens, the controversy, we're moving on. We're now in August 2017, which, if you remember, is when Charlottesville happened. And... Charlottesville was like very, I would say like very devastating to the psyche of a lot of people for various reasons. Like it was uh, explicitly titled like Nazi led march on Charlottesville. And so the Women's March, like a lot of organization responded and and criticized the, the actions of the, you know, the I cannot believe we have Nazis. Like I, every time I the say The Tiki it, Torch Nazis. Yeah. The, yeah. The Pier 1 Nazis, but they're still <laughs> Nazis. You know, like I'm just like. Prometheus didn't die and like give man fire for you guys to do this nonsense. (laughs) But here we are anyway. um, And so the Women's March, like everybody else, like responds. They had these nine Instagram posts doing comms around what happened. And a lot of Jewish women flagged that the Instagram messaging did not center Jewish people, which again, if you remember like an, an, you know, a Nazi-led march, like, usually the conclusion is, like, who are they coming for first? They are coming for Jews first. Well, and also, if you remember the original plank and the list of all the different intersecting identities with being a woman, like, the fact that they, that, like, many Jewish women noted that Jewish was not included in that list, it's like, you know, you can really understand why some people are looking for, who want to see themselves reflected in a statement after an explicitly white supremacist and anti-Semitic march. Like, right. it makes sense that people are reading 
reading closely what the Women's March is messaging. And, um, you know, and this woman, Heather Heyer, died also, who was like a very... um, she was a, a like a wonderful human who had just done so much anti-racist activism in her life. A lot of the conversation, I think, around Charlottesville did also become um, a conversation about anti-Black racism. And the truth is just this, is that anti-Semitism is also a form of racism. I would say, uh, you know, that it is one of the most, like, basic forms of racism that we have. You can call the prejudice whatever you want. It is experienced in a, in a way that is like very specifically tailored to your identity. Mm-hmm. So when you put this conversation even about Charlottesville like in the backdrop of Jewish women feeling like they have been erased and also that their fear and their concern is not taken seriously by people that they're supposed to be on the same team on, none of this surprises you. Mm-hmm. So like Charlottesville happens, like there we are. Now this is where the real classic internet drama happens. Well, we're not in classic internet drama territory. We're not territory. in classic internet drama we territory. People this, are- is, this is where classic internet drama territory like lives. <laughs> then like all of this has like passed and people start dredging up photos of the, some of the Women's March organizers palling around with Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. A lot of the photos are from a 2015 event. So recent. So this is why I'm saying that it's classic internet drama. Mm -hmm. It's like you start looking, you like go into the archive. Mm -hmm. It's like you can't hit them with what you have currently. You know there's something bad in the past. This is why I personally auto-delete all my tweets. (laughs) I have a tool that does this. Cannot play a player. But also like I will say about this tactic, if you feel that like someone is erasing you or discounting your point of view, it's like often the receipts are there in the oh, not too distant 100%. past. You know what I mean? I'm, like, I'm not surprised that something was found. Yeah. No, but nobody is surprised here, but it's like, I want to qualify that like the pictures were not recent. Yeah. They yeah. were, um, I, I say that because I think that like, not in this specific case, but I do think that like people should be given an opportunity to explain themselves. Like you can't make conclusions from, an Instagram post or from, uh, you know, like, I don't know, from like a tweet from five years ago. A lot of times you're right, but I think that like, you got to give people a chance to explain themselves. Yeah. I understand the impulse to dig. And I also think that like, in some ways it's fair, even if it's kind of old to ask for a conversation when you find something that is like further furthering, like whatever hurt you were feeling. I agree with you. I Mm -hmm. think that like, and also like, we'll probably get into this later. I also, the reason that I bring that up is that it is often a tactic that right-wing people use oh, 100%. On, yeah. on people that they're trying to discredit. For me, the question is who wants a conversation? Exactly. Yeah. But the thing that happens is that the pictures come up and very prominent Jewish women do ask for a conversation. Mm-hmm. And this um, this is on Twitter. They ask for uh, the Women's March organizers to explain the context of these photos. And also in finding the photos, people obviously find the specific event that it's at and the remarks that Louis Farrakhan has made. Now we're going to pause here. If you don't know who Louis Farrakhan is, welcome to being a normal, regular person. (laughs) Nobody gives a shit about Louis Farrakhan. Like you probably sitting at home have more influence than him in the world. But Louis Farrakhan is the leader leader of the Nation of Islam, which is a group that like over the civil rights movement has been like very prominent for like very specific and like salient reasons. And over the years has also, I would say like, you know, they're not in vogue. And part of it is that like Louis Farrakhan is a hate monger. Mm -hmm. Like he has said explicitly anti-Semitic things. He has said like explicitly transphobic things. He has said explicitly sexist things. Mm -hmm. But it's also true that he was an important person in the civil rights movement. Like two things can be true at the same time. 
and this is not a group like I would say that like in the black community today, the nation of Islam, it is not culturally relevant, but I would say that it is an emotionally relevant <laughs> component of what it means to be a black activist. Mm-hmm. Adam Serwer at The Atlantic has written the fully like the definitive take on why you should know why the nation of Islam is important to black people. And we'll link to it in the show notes. Okay. And this brings us up to the background that is relevant to the drama or division that are making headlines today. So let's take a break and then we will talk about that. Okay, so this brings us up to December 2018, to clarify. So Tablet Magazine, which is an online daily magazine of Jewish news, ideas, and culture, publishes an article about anti-Semitism within the Women's March. I think, would you say that's like a fair like top line mm-hmm. <laughs> on this like long article, including some statements from an organizer named Vanessa Rubel. This Tablet Magazine article is headlined, Is the Women's March Melting Down? But at its core, featured some charges of anti-Semitism among the small organizing group, particularly the people who were there at the very, very beginning planning the 2017 march. And it mostly relies on a woman named Vanessa Rubel as a source who says that at one of the early planning meetings, the co-chairs, Tamika Mallory and Carmen Perez, quote, asserted that Jewish people bore a special collective responsibility as exploiters of black and brown people. The tablet article says that six of the seven women present at that meeting did not talk to them about it. So the source for this is Vanessa Rubel. People who were present agree that whiteness was discussed and like white women's role historically as exploiters of black and brown people was discussed. But I think what is disputed by people who were in the room is whether it was specifically singling out Jewish women. So this article opened up a larger conversation about anti-Semitism and the Women's March about Louis Farrakhan and the relationship of some of the Women's March organizers to him. There was a New York Times article as well, which is the one that the listener originally sent us, but it is touching on a lot of these things that have kind of come up continually over the past two years of the Women's March existence, which is to say, acknowledging anti-Semitism, acknowledging vulnerabilities of Jewish women, but also the role of whiteness, the tendency to center issues of particular importance to white women, whether this movement is like really inclusive for everyone and how. It's like, it's really kind of dredged up a lot of things, even though a lot of the specific examples we just talked about are not being included in the conversation that's happening like in this moment since December. So, you know, people who are, you know, in positions of leadership at the Women's March now, like the communications director, Cassidy Fenlay, said that, quote, she is concerned about the tablet article because she, quote, I want Jewish women to feel welcome, like we are fighting for them because we are. One thing that is happening is a lot of discussion about Louis Farrakhan. (laughs) In the Farrakhan photos being dredged up, 
it was also uncovered that the Nation of Islam provided security for the Women's March, which a lot of people felt now meant that they had a business relationship with the Nation of Islam and that the Nation of Islam was like embroiled in the inner workings of the Women's March. And so Tamika Mallory, who is one of the co-chairs of the Women's March, clarified to the New York Times that the Nation of Islam was not hired for security. That's a direct quote from her. An internal document obtained by the Times said that the Women's March group does not ask the religious affiliations of contractors, but said that because private security firms employ a large number of Nation of Islam members, it is likely that some members of the sect have provided security for Women's March events. This is hilarious to anybody who knows like the dress of a man in the Nation of Islam. They're like, always wearing like impeccable clothes and a bow tie. And I was like, if somebody from Nation of Islam is guarding you, you know. <laughs> a strong aesthetic. A like, very yeah. strong aesthetic. A very strong like 60s freedom aesthetic. The truth of the matter is like Louis Farrakhan means something different to you possibly depending on your race or like your orientation to the civil rights movement or like your perspective on like what he does or his history that is like positive in the world in addition to the absolutely indefensible anti-Semitic remarks, sexist remarks, um, things like that. And, you know, our pal Adam Serwer wrote a piece last year in The Atlantic explaining what the nation of Islam means to some people, not to others. And he wrote, most people outside the black community come into contact with the nation of Islam this way. Farrakhan makes anti-Semitic remarks, which generate press coverage and then demands for condemnation. But many black people come into contact with the nation of Islam as a force in impoverished black communities, not simply as a champion of the black poor or working class, but of the black underclass, black people, especially men who have been written off or abandoned by white society. All of that is not to say, hey, Louis Farrakhan, great guy, no big deal. But it is to say that he and like what it signals to align yourself with him has become related to this conversation about charges of anti-Semitic comments in the earliest days of organizing for the Women's March. Um, a private conversation that is like not recorded, that not everyone is on the record talking about either. Um, and you know, and also like is another kind of vector for having this long simmering debate about like both the validity and like the real threat and real scourge that is anti-Semitism in addition to the real threat and real problem and real scourge of anti-Black racism. And I think another vector of this conversation too is that I I have heard like both in private and like seen on Twitter, I have seen so many Jewish women chafe at the fact that they are, you know, that they're lumped into the the white supremacist coalition <laughs> of white people. It is both like a really interesting and painful conversation to have. Friend of the podcast, Collier Meyerson, wrote actually a wonderful Twitter thread about this that I think should be a required reading for a lot of people. And she makes so many good points in it. Like, namely that like Jews are an incredibly unique group in America. White they, Jews, yeah. Um, yeah, white Jews are an incredibly unique group in America. They benefit from systemic white supremacy and are the targets of individual white supremacists. That is like a distinction that I think is lost on a lot of people who are not Jewish. You know, and Collier goes on to share like examples of her life. Like Collier herself is Jewish, but she is not white. She is married to someone who is Jewish and white. And so they both experience their race and their religion and their Jewish identity in completely, in completely different ways. And, 
And this also this idea of like who is white, mm-hmm. one is like is such a scam. There was a historical context in which like Jewish people are not white. Like for a long time, Jews were not white in America. And this process of becoming white is a thing that has happened to a lot of ethnicities, like people from the Balkans, people from like, you know, name name European countries that like uh, historically have like people have had prejudices about. Right. And I think that like for Jews, it takes on a very different shape because you cannot separate like Jews from the Jewish religion. You cannot separate them from Israel and you cannot separate them from anti-Semitism, no matter how they identify in their Judaism mm-hmm. and, and in their Jewishness. And so, and you see this so much in activist conversations where people like there's a lot of pain. The truth is that like oppression is painful and fear is very painful and you know like feeling targeted is like it like that's terrorism it is incredibly painful and a lot of these conversations like come from a place of like very palpable pain but there is also the the fact that like a lot of things can be true at the same time Mm -hmm. it can be true that the women's march leaders should be more forceful about condemning anti-semitism like it is true that black people can be more forceful about condemning anti-semitism like that is a reality of life in America and in the world. But it is also true, you know, like I will speak for myself at least only, I know that I have felt a lot of pain hearing white Jewish women talk about anti-Semitism as if it's the only form of racism that is out there. Mm-hmm. Or that what it, like I, I don't believe in oppression Olympics. I was like, nobody is trying to meddle here. But I also I also understand how like how your identity like intersects so personally with the kind of targeting that you feel Mm -hmm. you know and but the truth you know i'm like who like who makes all these rules the white man and the white man wins and everybody gets to fight for the scraps right and so just thinking about how like so many people are right in this conversation like jewish feminists are right and so many people are wrong the women's march response has been wrong in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and sometimes like that's just the like that's the shit you have to contend with yeah, and I, so I, I, I'm interested in going back to that listener email that we read at the beginning and like reading it again and talking about it in the context of all of this. I'm just going to read, read this again. This situation is heartbreaking to me. It's the epitome of divide and conquer. I believe that both sides believe strongly in their truth, but I also believe that we must find a way to live with our differences and unite to fight the bigger challenges before us. The two of you have a platform and the skills to start to reverse the vicious cycle. I don't blame you for wanting to avoid it, but the stakes are just too high. Full body hives. (laughs) So I really feel like one thing that is important contextually for this email is that a lot of coverage of this particular moment, the stuff about the allegations of anti-Semitism in the earliest planning days, like things that were said in person, and then... Also, the the things about March leadership associating with Louis Farrakhan, like that's kind of how the current, like, air quote, divisions or differences are being categorized. A lot of that coverage is on right-wing media. Like when we were kind of doing some like, okay, like let's find some things that we know we want to reference. I had to like 
skip around one million daily callers. Yeah, who's links. keeping the receipts of like when the women are fighting each other? <laughs> of you course, know what I mean? like, who, yeah, they're rubbing their hands together like Mr. Burns. Like they're delighted <laughs> in this. That's funny. I was gonna say a Birdman. So wow, racial divides. Racial oh, real. divides. I know. Real. But I'm you know like, what? Who both, is Mr. Burns? Both analogies. Just kidding. Yeah. Just kidding. Choose from the buffet <laughs> of analogies. Like whatever is more relevant to you. Simpsons lives matter. Oh my God. <laughs> Don't even yellow lives matter me. Like, I can't. Um, but like, you know, so anyway, so so I just want to say that I think some of the desire to say things like, let's unite and fight the bigger challenges, like come from this desire to not air our dirty laundry or like, you know, fight who's really the problem here, which is like like this horrible presidency or something like that. And if you've been paying any attention while we've been talking about all this stuff, we are talking about literally the deepest and most painful divisions and like scourges that like exist in modern culture and society. Mm -hmm. It's like we are talking about endemic racism and we are talking about like differences in privilege that are like really hard to separate out and we are talking about what happens in organizing context when you're trying to like write one platform to speak for like literally millions of people like all of these are things that are not getting solved by the women's march are not getting solved like this week not even this lifetime, maybe. Oh, my God, maybe. Definitely. Like, I mean, like, 100%. Just being optimistic, Anne. You know, like, just just trying to be a good ancestor and, like, and like yeah. continuing to address it. Right. And also, you know, the, the other thing about this, getting an email like this, too, is just part of why these kinds of emails, like, worry me. These, like, oh, we should be united and we should fight and, we you know, like, what we shouldn't fight each other is I was, like, this is such an ahistorical position to have, mm -hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. the history of any progress that we have had as a people has included like very serious infighting. Part of the reason that we know that Louis Farrakhan's a piece of shit is <laughs> because of fighting in the civil rights movement. You know what I mean? It's really important. And I think like, you know, and forget that for one minute too. I do think that there's also just this idea that like all women have to get along all the time and we have to get along even when we are trying to literally dismantle systems of hate. I'm like, are you kidding me? We're, we're gladiators in an arena here. Like nobody is going to be nice to you here. Only total dummies would agree 100% of the time on how to take down such a complex yeah. like system of injustice. I'm like, are you serious? Like you're talking to people who are carrying like hundreds of years of trauma and pain and mm -hmm. also just like psychological the psychological warfare every day of feeling like your government is out to get you mm -hmm. and that you can't trust anybody anymore like we are fighting for our lives every day and the idea that you're supposed to be a polite lady when we are trying to do the work of freedom like or that, just swallow it and yeah, do it yeah it's mm -hmm. wild but also like read a fucking book man like women <laughs> have been fighting forever <laughs> you know and like so rebecca traster is like good and mad actually does a really great job about this like the book is obviously about like the historical importance of anger but a lot of that is talking about the infighting and in women's movement. So when I think about like going back to like who went to the women's march and who, who thought that they knew what the women's march was or whatever, I was like, if you went to the women's march because you thought that it was going to be fun and that you were going to have a good time, you were literally the biggest dummy ever. Going into like an arena of activism is to go to a place of conflicts. Like you were going to the mat every single time and it's normal to fight like divisiveness is good you should be worried if you find like hundreds of thousands of people who have all agreed on the fact that there's one way to dismantle 
hatred and we haven't done it yet. I was like, you should probably be worried about that. I think a lot also about the second wave feminists that everybody loves to shit on. Mm. Those ladies, like, got a lot done. But those ladies cried all the time. Oh, they were so, like, so angry at each other. They were like, so yeah. angry at each other. And also, it's okay to be angry at each other. It is very hard to look at people who you believe are on your side and understand still, like, the world affects you in different ways. It's incredibly painful. And I'm not saying this from a position of, like, being a a person who is like, I don't know, like say more marginalized than other friends that I have. I was like, no, like this is hard for everybody. And the thing that always like fascinates me is that there are women who can understand this in relation to men, for example, mm -hmm. where they're like, ah, like we're just all trying to get free here. How come the men are oppressing us? But they don't understand that that same dynamic is possible when the men are not there, that it's actually not about gender and it's not just about class and it's not I'm like it's about power and it's about like who has it and who doesn't have it and and feeling that you can trust the people who are around you and feeling that you're seen every single time that people see you for who you are I feel like we've had internet feminist fights that were like, there was way more fire than this. And I oh was like, God, we completely. all, and we all survived. The women's march fight is happening in the New York times. I'm like, how oh, highbrow and like chill, you know? But I was like, people's lives get destroyed by doing freedom. You're playing with fire. I don't know. I mean, I think that the reason we're talking about this is because of that stat you read about 1% of the whole U.S. population showed up for this march. Like, I think not to defend the New York Times, ignoring internet feminist beef for years. But <laughs> Please ignore it. I Nobody know, write about the beef. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but I, I do think that like there's, there is, there's something going on here where like, um, because of the sheer size of the number of people who showed up, there is like this sense of this is like, the force pushing back against the agenda of this presidency, which is like obviously bullshit. I don't think that even the people who are like most invested in time and energy with like organizing things under the like Women's March TM banner would claim that like this is the way to be in the resistance. I However, know, but Anne, but don't you also believe that that is actually like a classic kind of sexism. Like, why do we have to solve everything? Well, that's, that's <laughs> right. The idea that like, okay, so now this group of women is like going to like shovel, start shoveling the shit in real time is like what everyone has been conditioned to think. Like socially, that's one thing. I also think it's interesting when you said like, you know, you don't show up at the march to have a good time. Because like when I thought about my motivation for actually attending the women's march, I would not say that I show up to have a good time, but I don't feel like that is where my activist work happens. Like there is not a part of me that thinks this is how I'm making change, showing up at this March every January. Like I honestly go there to feel a sense of 
community and being reinvigorated mm -hmm. in a sense. Um, I think that sometimes it's good to be photographed in a large group of people whose only uniting message is we hate this president. And I also think that like these problems are going to happen aside from like the whole like women shoveling everyone's shit, which is a real dynamic here. The other thing that's going on is like, if you think of feminism like a funnel, like taking a political stance or doing an activist thing or maybe calling themselves a feminist for the first time, this is providing some really low level way of doing that, which I don't confuse with the kind of like long game activist work that needs to happen during this presidency or frankly, any time. But I do think that it is kind of a recruitment tool, I guess is what I'm trying mm -hmm. to say. And it's a tool for recommitting to doing activism in other venues. Like that is what it is for me. I do not see it as representative of a resistance. I do not see it as the governing body of feminism. One thing that's happening in the background of a lot of the coverage, and I'm talking now about like more well-meaning coverage, not like, you know, bullshit right-wing media coverage of these issues is like, it's not being properly contextualized in the scope of other activism that's happening or like other feminist activism work that's happening. I think that that's fair. I like, I was thinking a lot about why this story is having such a moment in like, in like a press that usually ignores like large feminist issues. People love it when women fight, mm -hmm. you know, and there is something like very appealing about it. And there's something very, the historical forces who want to make sure that we are never free. They like love this shit. Like going back to this conversation that I think a lot of Jewish people have that is always like, why do black people like, why can't they like, I don't know, <laughs> exile Louis Farrakhan once and for all. I'm like, mm, we have like, he is not relevant in my imagination in the same way that he is relevant in the, in the imagination of a Jewish person. And to be clear, like feeling anger about how he is relevant in their imagination is like 100% justified. Like, I don't want to gloss over that. The man is a hate monger. But the reason that this is so top of mind for me is that, again, when I look at the conversation around like the women's march leaders and this, this conversation about like, should they step down? Should, you know, like, what should they do? whatever, I was like, first of all, nobody should have the job of being a full-time activist. That is crazy. That is controversial. Like, um, you know what I mean? Um, listen, in you think this, no movement should have leaders? Here's what, no, I don't think so. I think that movement should 100% have leaders. I think that like in this moment that we are in, how we raise leaders to be like faces of movements that they don't quite fully represent. And then there is a celebrity aspect to it. And there's this like, ginormous like fame aspect where I was like this is just bad it's just bad it's also like not a job that I want so I never understand why somebody wants that job also being the co-chair of the women's march is very different than being the I don't know like the CEO of a nonprofit. I think that mm -hmm. there's there's also something about like actual like what is your role like what do you do every right day? and that's an organization not a movement exactly. I think that's the difference like the an women's organization march is an organization exactly the women's march is an organization and that is controversial but so like going back to this point about like watching somebody like Tamika Mallory like take a lot of fire for this organization in particular has been very instructive for me and the reason that I talked about the context too of how long suffrage took like I want to be clear that I don't want to I don't want to fall into the trap of the women's march has been 365 days what have they accomplished you know <laughs> I was like when it's been 100 years come back and then we can talk about it because truly we cannot evaluate what they've accomplished but I also feel confident in saying that like in the last year of the women's march this outsized amount of power that I have seen people ascribe to them, like, I personally do not feel it. I was like, I do not feel that the Women's March has been 
powerful on a grassroots and on an electoral level at the way that people are projecting onto them. I was or like, on like a policy change yeah. level outside of electoral totally. politics. And that's not that's not a knock on the Women's March. It is the reality of like, hello, you just got here. You're two years deep. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah you just got here. <laughs> so like, and I also want to be clear in saying that like, I am disappointed and disgusted that it took the leaders of the Women's March so long to say the very simple anti-Semitism is not cool. You know, I'm like, that's the thing that we should... Are also like, we're sorry for... Right, like, and we're sorry for minimizing your 100%. Pain. Yeah. Like, I want to add like all of that as a context to the thing that I'm going to say that like, it has been very instructive for me to see in this episode happen at the same time as the new Congress is being sworn in, mm. watching Nancy Pelosi on TV receive this like roaring ovation and like adoration from people and she in her speech she was talking about suffrage and she was like you know it's been like like women only got the right to vote a hundred years ago and i was like this is very interesting i was like which women nancy pelosi and so for me having somebody like tamika mallory who in the grand scheme of electoral politics of grassroots politics of i you know like name it i'm like kind of a nobody if like I'm honest, like about my feelings, watching her have to answer more for white supremacy that Nancy Pelosi, who is the leader of the house, like get away with something like that. I was like, this is a very instructive moment. And it's a reminder about why we fight about the things that we fight about and why we are hurt in the ways that we are hurt and why we lash out in the ways that we lash out. It is instructive, but it's also like, fine. Like women been fighting. Women fight and women get shit done and we don't all have to get along, but we do have to do the work. I'm nodding so hard. My head is about to roll off because this Nancy Pelosi example is perfect because when I hear a phrase like we must find a way to live with our differences and unite to fight the bigger challenges from the readers, from the readers email that implies to me like a hierarchy of like, what is a challenge? Like that means that like someone's making a decision about what a bigger challenge is. And historically, like when those terms are set, they are set by white women like women suddenly become synonymous with white women and you get things like a speech saying we've had the vote for this many years and it's like okay like, like bitch who <laughs> who is the we and i think that we must find a way to live with our differences it's like who is the we like it's the same question and yeah. i really think that like we have derided the oppression olympics like if you really believe that injustice is about like a system of incredibly complex and interlocking systemic problems which is like well, we believe in this family, <laughs> then you are not going to be able to decide in a group of millions of people what the bigger challenges are. Like part of what's going on is that like everyone is doing their part to work on things that they have a unique ability to affect, a unique investment in. And like there is an expectation in my mind of support and solidarity, but like everyone doesn't have to do that the same way and everyone doesn't have to unite behind the same goal. And because the Women's March isn't united by the same goal, does not mean that like all activism is in disarray and women can't get it together. Yeah, I'm like oppression is in disarray and in shambles. Exactly. Like, Oppr activism is oppression doing is great. wild. <laughs> oppression is like chaotic. Like yeah, like it is activism is doing great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just keeping thinking about oppression is a shambles. <laughs> 
a shambles. It's nuts. <laughs> oh, I'm on the none floor. Of it, none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. But and anyway, somehow it works. <laughs> so just like ask these questions about who's finding a way to live with what differences, who is determining who the bigger challenges are. Like to me, I'm like, I would rather be affiliated with people who are continuing to engage in like difficult conversations about the shambles of oppressions all around us than people who are like extremely on message and exclusionary and like, you know, continuing to replicate the problems they see around them by ignoring them. Yeah. You know, and I think that this, like this moment is also such a reminder to me because I can get so cynical about so much of this like so much you activism as a job. I like that you say that you're Jesus. like delivering news. <laughs> I am like, I, I'm delivering news to myself because I have to remind myself is that, you know, part of what is going on in this moment is that like people are hurting and scared. It's not about this like academic kind of, you know, like explain your oppression or use the right word, the wokeness Olympics. Like this is not what is going on here. What is really going on here is that like people are hurt and people are afraid And sometimes those are the actual words that you need to use. It's so important, like, even amongst marginalized people to see and hear each other. Mm -hmm. Because, like, otherwise all you think is that, like, your pain is pain that nobody else has seen before. Isn't there a James Baldwin quote about this? And then he's like, and then you read a book and then you learn that the world is full of pain. That's Aminatu, so not James Baldwin. I'm, like, paraphrasing (laughs) so terribly to the estate of James Baldwin. I apologize. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like, A lot of the blinders are not because you hate other people. The blinders are because you are in so much pain that you think that your pain is the only pain that the world has. Right, it's blotted out, like, your ability to really grapple with the pain of others. Right, and so, like, for me, like, you know, like, my my thing that I would like to see from people who are in activist circles is, like, a little less academe-speak and a lot more, like... Can we just start saying the things that we're afraid of, like in real ways and the things that we are hurt by? Because this Women's March conversation to me, you know, and it's not to say that like people would have responded in the right way, but I have a different reaction hearing from, you know, the like, why are you still pals with Louis Farrakhan? Like versus like a, hey, I am really scared for myself and I'm scared for my family. And here is a person that threatens my existence and you seem okay with him. Wolf's yeah. clothing. And you're or wolf in sheep's clothing. That <laughs> thing. And you seem okay with him. I don't know the results of that, but I do think that like at some point, talking about the fear in a real way and in this like hyper-personalized way, which I think is the fear is what led people who had never marched before to march. Mm-hmm. It's what led people who like didn't give a shit about politics, like people who never voted a day in their lives to be like, oh, I'm gonna like knit a thing and like go halfway across the country with my friends. I was like, what does that? It's fear Mm -hmm. and it's hurt and pain. And so we should probably call it by what it is and start dealing with it instead of pretending that like everything is a system that you had to like learn about in graduate school. But also like, you know, I think that when I listen to you say that, I realize that there are some environments in which putting like that hurt and pain at the forefront works because you were all there with good intentions. And I think like Mm -hmm. one reason why there is so much strife, it's like, oh, weren't we supposed to all be here with a similar intention? And like, and that is somehow thrown into question. And it's like, actually, I don't think you can lead with hurt when you're dealing with people who 
actively want to undermine your existence. But I do think that like when you are working in close relationship with, I'm not even going to say like in the same movement as, but if your work is like intersecting with the work of other people and you have some kind of core, core beliefs about justice or about freedom, you can lead with something like hurt and pain and fear. And that can be a powerful force. That presumption is very important that like that the person on the other end cares about your pain. Mm-hmm. One reason why I don't feel like panicked about the state of activism when I read one New York Times article about the the women's march is because it's like I see this as kind of like one point on a bigger scatter plot that is like way more complex. Do you remember that part in Rebecca's book where Maxine Waters is watching Bella Abzug yell at um, Gloria Steinem? Yes. Where, like, Somebody is yelling. Somebody is crying. I'm misremembering the story, but there's drama. But if, but if yeah. I'm but if I'm honest, it's probably Bella is yelling. <laughs> <laughs> like I have a hard time seeing Yella Abzug. Yeah, no, I'm like <laughs> Bella is yelling at, uh, at Gloria. Like I don't see that anywhere. And like there's like crying and yelling, and Maxine is like you know like classic like black lady watching two white ladies being like what the fuck is going on here, and. And Gloria just goes, that's how we talk to each other in New York. (laughs) And that story like made me so happy for so many reasons because I was like, this is such a good vignette. Like people have been fighting. People have been fighting since before you were the apple in the eye of like your own fucking oppression. Like I've been fighting for you. I've been like wanting to do something about it. We're not reinventing the wheel. And so I think that like reading a lot about especially like the women's movement is something that it makes me feel better mm-hmm. because I'm like, Oh, these people did a lot, but like, my God, like they need a therapist in Fighting here. at every step of the way yeah. internally as well as externally. I know. Like, yeah. And I'm like, but look at us now we got, we can have a credit card without a husband. <laughs> I like sign my own apartment. Like <laughs> I don't have to be like shackled to him. And I was like, those bitches did that. And they were crying and fighting every day. Right. Thank you for mm-hmm. your work. So I don't know. I think that like, Look to other activists in your life because, and and look to like read about their truth because we're not doing anything new here. Like hatred is not new. Activism is not new. So I don't know. I take a tiny bit of like solace in that. I'm like, oh, we're right on schedule. This Mm -hmm. is great. This is great. So (laughs) I mean, it's been right on schedule since like the very first days, right? Like it's not even, not even new today. (laughs) Yeah. A shambles in every corner. Yeah. Like there aren't even any corners left. The whole building has collapsed. Like Uh, it is. Yeah. Shambles. (sighs) I love this. Okay. I need to lay on the floor because this is a lot. I need a snack. (laughs) This is a lot. Okay. Let's snack and lay on the floor. And uh, to all the activists out there who are fighting with other activists, we see you and we appreciate you. See you in the fight. I know. (laughs) Please call out anti-Semitism to all the Jewish women out there. Please call out anti-black racism. Thank you. Um, You know, like we want to root for everybody, uh, (laughs) but also we don't have to. We're just rooting for freedom. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's do this. Let's get this freedom. (laughs) 2019, let's get this freedom. Happy New Year. (laughs) (laughs) My God. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcasts, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. 
We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at CallYRGF. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.